This is the first main point of doctrine, divine election and reprobation. It is the judgment concerning divine predestination which the Synod of Dort declared to be in agreement with the Word of God and accepted till now in the Reformed Churches, set forth in several articles. So we'll read Articles 1 and 2 together. I'll, I'll announce both. So first, let's read Article 1 together. Since all people have sinned in Adam and have come under the sentence of the curse and eternal death, God would have done no one an injustice if it had been his will to leave the entire human race in sin and under the curse and to condemn them on account of their sin. As the apostle says, the whole world is liable to the condemnation of God. All have sinned and are deprived of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But now we come to article two. But this is how God showed his love. He sent his only begotten son into the world so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you to look upon us in grace. Look upon us in grace as we look away from ourselves into the face of your Son, whom you have appointed our mediator and our savior. As all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in your Son, guide us by your Holy Spirit into the true understanding of the doctrines of Christ. May our meditation upon his truth produce in us the fruit of righteousness to the glory and exaltation of his name, the instruction and edification of this congregation, and the salvation of the lost through our witness. We pray this in the name and in the favor of your well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, in dependence on his Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, tonight we're going to start our study of one of the greatest works of the Holy Spirit in defending the gospel in his church. And that's because we're looking at the decision of the Synod of Dort on the five main points of doctrine in dispute in the Netherlands. See, about 100 years after Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg, a synod, or uh, the Reformation was under attack in the Netherlands, and a synod had to be called in order to, as one of my professors put it, save the Reformation. The Reformation of, was under attack, and they were, had the job of saving the Reformation. The Reformation was under attack. See, the gospel was under attack. They were warming over the doctrines of Pelagius, the ancient heretic. He was rearing his head in the churches in the Netherlands through the work of Jacob Arminius. And the thing about Jacob Arminius was he kept presenting himself like a peaceable guy who just wanted to, dis wanted to disagree about the heart of the gospel. He kept presenting himself as this peaceable, ironic guy who just happened to start fights about the Trinity and fights about salvation everywhere he went. He was a guy who kept rewriting church history to try and use church history to justify his new read of things. And he kept lying everywhere he went. He would lie to anyone who actually knew what he was saying so that they wouldn't catch him. The churches were being attacked by this Arminius, a man who knew he was denying the truths of the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession, and yet kept saying it was just a matter of different reading. 
And people hoped that when this guy Arminius died, that his doctrines would die and go to hell with him. But his followers continued to push them and make them worse. But the Lord preserved his church. The synod of the Reformed churches that was called together came together and wrote these articles that we'll study as a rebuttal and as a preservation of the truth. There are five points of Christian truth to answer the five points of error that Arminius brought up. And so as we study these truths that we confess together, this isn't a main point tonight, but it's an important point to note. As we study these truths, what we are studying is an actual record of God's goodness in preserving his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. God preserves his church by the work of the Holy Spirit, even through the creeds and confessions, even through church polity, even through the decisions made in church polity. And that's what the synod this synod's decisions represent. They represent the Holy Spirit doing what he's promised to do, working even through good order and good decision-making. But what we'll also find as we study these is that these confessions aren't a burden preventing us from getting the gospel out. They're actually a God-given gift that help us get the gospel right. That'd be a good name for a book title. Getting the gospel right. Because the canons are helping us do that. They're helping us understand and get the gospel right. But specifically tonight, we're looking at the first two articles. These first two articles of the first head of doctrine are important because they give us a starting ground for understanding why we need the gospel and the true beauty of the gospel that has been revealed to us. And we'll look at it under this theme tonight. Our main theme tonight is this. Our salvation is based on the unfair, superabounding grace of God to us in Christ Jesus. Our salvation is the unfair, superabounding grace of God to us in Christ Jesus. We'll look at it in two points. First, God's justice is fair. Secondly, God's mercy is unfair. God's justice is fair. His mercy is unfair. So point one, God's justice is fair. The canons are going to deal with all sorts of glorious truths, even in the next couple articles after the ones we're studying tonight. And they're going to deal with glorious truths about how God saves his people, how he bends and softens their wills, and he, hard, or he softens hard hearts. And that's because he loved his sheep from all eternity, and he gave his sheep to his son, and his son loved them in all eternity, and his son came in time and lived the life that his sheep should have lived and died the death his sheep deserved. And his son redeemed his sheep and never lost one of them. But in order to get to that stuff, in order to get to the rest of what Scripture teaches about election, we have to start here with God's justice. And we have to do that because, as one of my professors pointed out, if we start anywhere else, if we start from any other point, we're going to end up here anyway, and we're going to end up in speculation. And so we have to start with this question of justice and fairness. Is God's justice fair? Is God a monster? Is, is God just when he speaks and blameless when he judges? And so the first thing we need to see when we're looking at these beautiful truths is what we saw this morning. We need to see, the first thing we need to understand and see when we understand the gospel is actually the condemnation of the law. We need to understand the condemnation of the law before the gospel makes any sort of sense. We need to understand the terror of that scene in the garden when Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit and their eyes are opened and they're afraid and they're naked and they sow fig leaves together and they're hiding and God's coming and he's coming to judge them. 
And we need to understand how scary it is when God comes in the spirit of the day to Adam and says, Adam, where are you? See, we need to understand the bad news that the law brings before we understand the greatness of the gospel. We need to understand the greatness of our sin and misery before the goodness of God to us in election makes any sort of sense. See, the law tells us we are lost in Adam. Because in the garden, Adam represented you before God. I like to remind our kids at Valley Christian when we teach them that Adam was kind of like your president. Whether you like it or not, Joe Biden right now is your president. And this is not a political statement. It's a factual statement. And whether you like him or whether you liked Trump or not, no matter who the president is, no amount of saying not my president will change the fact that he represents you. Your president represents you before God. And, and so that means that when whoever the president is goes and talks to other, other heads of other countries, he represents you. He's your federal head. When he signs bills into law, he represents you. He is writing as the will of the people. And, and when he does and says and is embarrassing things, he represents you. And that's what Adam was. Adam was your federal head in the garden, and he represented you by sinning. And so, because that's who you and I are in Adam, because in Adam you and I disobeyed and ate the fruit, God would do nobody any injustice if he sent everyone, if he sent the little babies straight to hell. And that's because Adam earned for humanity, dying you shall die. God will punish original sin, and he's completely fair to do it. His justice is fair. So when two countries are in a war, and one country bombs the other, the bombs don't fall from the sky and look in the windows of a building and say, eh, this floor's fine, these people seem like they're not doing anything too militaristic, we're really going to concentrate on floor three where all the soldiers are. No, the whole building blows up, and everybody in the building dies, and Adam's sin put you at war with God, and the bomb is coming, and it's God's justice, and it's fair. But not only did Adam's fall into sin put us in the wrong with God. Not only did it put us at war with God, it actually lost us something. It lost the excellent gifts that we had. We lost true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. We lost the ability to keep the law. We lost the ability to do this and live. We lost the ability to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. And so we became sinners who not only can't repay what Adam owes in full, but we became sinners who add to our debt every day as sinners. We are futile-minded, dark-hearted enemies of God with, okay, I'm, with callous, wicked, deceitful hearts who are ignorant and dead. I have it written down. I'll memorize it eventually. From the time of the fall onward, the Bible tells the story of how far we have fallen in Adam. And the Bible is one big story in, in one part of how sinful and wicked the death-deserving descendants of Adam have become. The book of Genesis alone has stories that we should probably just mark not safe for children. The Bible's full of stories of people that it's like, man, Christians shouldn't read this. And yet these are the very people that God promised to send to the Messiah to save. And, and so we are, 
right to say that God's justice is fair. God judging his people, or God judging people, God judging the world is fair. And this is an important point to get right because it's one of the things that Arminius and his followers were undermining. We know from people who studied his library when he died that Arminius was reading a guy by the name of Molina. Molina was a Jesuit. Jesuits were counter-Reformation monks. They were monks with the sole mission of trying to destroy the truth of the Reformation. And Molina asked this question. This is what Arminius was reading. He said, What grievance will God have on judgment day against the wicked, since they were unable not to sin as long as God did not make them good? And we answer, God made us good, and in his own image, but Adam lost it. Adam sinned and put us wrong with God. Adam sinned and lost these excellent gifts. God made you good. Adam lost that good. And so our answer is Adam. We are lost and fallen and sinful and wicked and evil in Adam. And it would not be unfair for God to leave us that way. He can and will judge you and me for our sins. And we would deserve it. So that's point one. Point one is God's justice is fair. But then secondly, point two, God's mercy is unfair. God's mercy is unfair. This is how God showed his love. He sent his only begotten son into the world so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God saved his people from his justice by giving his only begotten son. And so when your Arminian friends ask, hey, don't you reformed people know about John 3.16? We say, yes, in fact, it's a crucial part of our confession, but it's not all there is. See, John 3.16 is an important part. It is God's overwhelmingly gracious answer to the greatness of our sin and misery. Because God's answer to his justice against us was sending his son to bear the curse for us and sending his son full of grace and truth so that we could receive grace upon grace. That's unfair. As one pastor put it, the very God who was and is the flame of Mount Sinai sent his son to quench that flame and bring us to Zion and, and, and restore to us all that was lost, that's unfair mercy. When we understand the glorious truth of John 3.16 in context, we understand that it's not about the quantity or the extent of the atonement. John 3.16 is not telling you who the sheep are. It's telling you that there are sheep. It's about the overwhelming goodness of God who would give the thing most precious to him to take rebels who deserve his wrath and turn them into the apple of his eye. That's unfair mercy. And it's when we understand that this verse is not about quantity, but quality, that it's about the unfair mercy of a God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save sinners. It's when we understand that, when we realize that no one deserves salvation, everyone deserves damnation, and yet God has sent his son to save his sheep. It's when we understand all that that we can understand the rest of what we're going to get into in these canons. One of my pastors back home loved to point this out. He loved to point out that it's only when we understand the unfairness of God's mercy that we can come to a text like Romans 9. And we can say with Spurgeon, and when we get to that text, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. We can get to that text and say, I have a problem with that text. But it's not the problem the ungodly have. See, the, the world, the ungodly, the impure, and the unstable, and the dark-hearted have a problem with Esau have I hated. 
But when we understand God's justice and his unfair mercy, the problem we have is not Esau have I hated, it's Jacob have I loved. See, it shouldn't just be Jacob, or have I loved, Esau have I hated. It should actually be Esau have I hated, and Jacob have I hated, and Judah have I hated, and Abraham have I hated, and David have I hated, and Jeffrey have I hated, and everybody that's ever been born have I hated. That's how it should be. But this is how God showed his love. He sent his only begotten son into the world that whoever should believe has eternal life. See, John 3.16 is about the contrast between the greatness and the glory and the holiness of God and the pitiful, pathetic state of the world that fell in Adam. It's about God versus the world, and it's about the greatness and amazingness and logic-defying nature of the fact that a holy God, a holy God who should kill and damn us, would, and who would be just to do so, again, God's justice is fair. That God sent his son to save his people, and that is unfair mercy. So when we understand John 3.16, that it is not a verse telling us who the sheep are, but calling us to marvel that there would be any sheep at all, that he would call some people his own, and it's calling us to marvel at a fair and just God showing us the riches of his kindness to us in Christ Jesus in unfair mercy, when we understand that it should, when we understand all of this, when we understand that we should get damnation, but we have received grace upon grace, that should make us praise. It makes us praise God for so great a deliverance, and it makes us praise him that he's the God who elects equally lost people out of a whole fallen human race based solely on sheer grace. When we understand John 3.16 in context, we don't poo-poo and distort the doctrine of election, like, again, the wicked, unstable, and impure, something we'll learn in the canons. We praise God and we rest in comfort beyond words. When we understand John 3.16 in context, we praise God and we rest in the comfort that God would send his son to save people who don't deserve it. We praise God that he elected them based solely on the fact that he loved them. No looking down the corridors of time and saying, ah, that one looks like a good deal, or ah, that one would probably have faith if I enlightened him enough. None of that. He chose them from all eternity just because he loved them, just because they're his. And he sent his son to save them. That is unfair mercy. God's justice is fair, but his mercy in saving his elect is profoundly unfair. And as one pastor pointed out, and as we heard again this morning, the point of this all, the point of God's fair justice and his unfair mercy should not be the kind of unfairness that leads us to rage about how unfair it is. It's, it's not the kind of unfairness that can lead us to anything but gratitude as our only response. And then we can say this with Paul. We can say this. In light of God's justice which is fair in his mercy, which is unfair, we can say, oh, this depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Who has been his advisor, who has counseled him, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from and through and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Gracious and merciful Father, the word of God is the authority for my life because it's God-breathed and it's true. 
I need to believe and obey this word, and I am the Lord your God. You're not supposed to be testing, not because I have to prove it to you, but because God said it. This is a stark contrast with Adam and Eve. This is a stark contrast with what Israel does in the wilderness. Adam and Eve and Israel join the serpent. They lend their ear to the serpent and give in and try to stand as judges over the word of God. Jesus says what my father says is true and I'm not going to test it. Israel decides to complain and doubt whether what God has says is true. And Jesus trusts his father's word completely. Adam failed to keep the law. Adam was cast out of the garden and he lost the right to build new creation for you to live with God in. Israel failed to keep the law and they died in the wilderness. And even in the land, Israel disobeyed the law and they were spit out. They were spit out of the land and the land was a picture of new creation. And Israel's failure to keep that law was a picture of Adam's failure to keep that law. But the good news is that Jesus kept the law for you. Jesus obeyed the covenant of works. He kept do this and live. And he defeated the serpent. He cast the snake out. And because of that, he won the right to build you new creation and live there with you forever. And this brings us to our third and final point, new creation gained. Read with me again, verse 13. New creation gained, point three. We'll start at verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him. The devil departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Satan knows at this moment that Jesus already won. Jesus already won, and Satan knows he needs to retreat until Gethsemane. And that's because when Satan quoted Psalm 91, Satan quoted verses 11 and 12, but he conveniently left out verse 13. See, the very next verse in Psalm 91 is this, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. Who tramples the serpent underfoot? It's Jesus. Satan knows what's happening as a result of Christ's victory. He knows his head's about to be crushed and he needs to retreat. Psalm 91 says it, and Psalm 91 was repeating that promise of Genesis 3, that God has promised a better Adam who's going to keep the covenant of works, who's going to earn new creation for you. This is the promised Messiah. This is the head crusher. This is the serpent slayer. This is the savior. And he's here and the serpent is fleeing him. And Christ's victory means the devil's defeat, and Satan knows it. Satan knows what's going on here. He knows Christ just won, and he knows he's gonna, that Christ is going to advance, and Satan knows that he needs to retreat. This is Satan's tactical retreat, and Satan is trying to rally his forces, and he's going to try and win at Gethsemane and win at the cross, but we know Satan won't win there either. Satan's retreat here is the first retreat of many to come. And that also means that this is the beginning of Christ's kingdom and conquest. He just won new creation for us, and he starts winning people in verses 14 through 15. This is new creation breaking in. Look with me at verses, the last two verses of our passage. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Jesus gets into Galilee and news about him starts spreading. The beginning of Christ's rightly gotten glory begins immediately after he rejects the temptation to get glory wrongly. As soon as 
Jesus rejects the devil's offer for all the wrongly gotten glory of all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus has the word about him start to spread. Jesus just resisted getting glory wrongly in the temple, but what's happening now? He's glorified by all in their synagogues. Jesus begins even at the end of chapter 4 to cast out demons because his kingdom is coming. It ends in New Jerusalem. It ends in Revelation 21. Christ brings down the heavenly city from above and lives with them forever, but it starts here in Luke 4. It starts with Jesus casting out the snake and earning new creation for you. And that's what Luke 4 is about. Luke 4 is about the last Adam and the true son of Israel. Jesus is the promised law keeper, and he kept the covenant of works. And the call today from our passage is the call that screams to us from every part of Scripture, believe in him. God wants you to hear this passage and trust that Jesus is the last Adam and the true son of Israel, who is your perfect righteousness before the Father. And he is your perfect holiness before the Father. And he is the perfectly obedient one whose obedience on your behalf is yours by faith alone. And so God wants you to read this passage today and say with Dr. Machen, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. There is no hope for me without it. When you go before the throne on that last day and er, and, and the Father asks you, why should I let you in? Have you died the death you deserve in Adam? You say, Jesus died it for me. But then he says, should I let you into life with me forever? Have you earned it by obeying the law that Adam broke? And you say, Jesus earned it for me. He cast out the snake. He earned new creation. And it's mine in him by faith. In Adam, we failed to keep God's law and trust God's word. Christ has kept and obeyed and trusted on our behalf. In Adam, we died by Christ's obedience. We are made alive and we will live with him forever because we are righteous in him. We are clothed with his righteousness as we prayed this morning. And God looks at you as if you had obeyed like Christ obeyed for you in Luke 4. In Adam, we failed to stay in the garden and build the kingdom of God. In Christ, Adam, the last Adam, has one and is building what we never could. And so in our failures this week and in the car ride this morning, the call is to look to Christ who earned paradise for us. Christ earned paradise for you. The call is to look to him not just in his death, but in his life. You are made righteous by the life of Christ. And in looking to Christ, we know that his finished work is our beautiful robe of righteousness before the Father. And we can trust that the God whose character is to provide for us, his character is that to us in Christ. And we can trust that even though we have failed to resist the devil, you and I failed in Adam to cast out the serpent, Christ has done it. And because Christ has done it, God is working in you by the power of the Holy Spirit to conform you into the image of his well-beloved son. And so one day you're going to be like him. You're going to be like him when you're with him in the new creation he earned for us. What has Jesus done for me as the last Adam? The answer is he earned new creation and life in the world to come. He fought the snake, he obeyed the law, and he did that so that you and I can love and fully enjoy him forever.
At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.